I know this doesn't come as a shock to anybody, but it is mid-February. <clears throat> Valentine's Day was this past Wednesday. Valentine's Day in this particular part of February is that time of the year when we typically see lots of hearts and flowers and chocolates and jewelry ads all over television and everywhere you turn. Advertisements for online dating, um, online dating sites usually offer periods of free communication. It's just that time of year. And I've got some information from history.com, the website, about this. It says, according to the Greeting Card Association, listen to this, according to the Greeting Card Association, if I can say it, listen, an estimated 1 billion Valentine's Day cards are sent each year, making Valentine's Day the second largest card sending holiday of the year. Women purchase approximately 85% of the Valentines. Now, there's some things on that website that make you scratch your head. I have some interesting non-information, shall we call it, regarding this seemingly so important holiday as Valentine's Day for so many. Let me give you a little bit of what I found on that website. <clears throat> and yes, I'm going to be making a biblical point. This is not about Valentine's Day, it's just an illustration. <clears throat> The history of Valentine's Day and the story of its patron saint is shrouded in mystery. The Catholic Church recognizes that there are at least three different saints named Valentine or Valentinus, all of whom were martyred. One legend contends that Valentine was a priest who served during the third century in Rome. When Emperor Claudius II decided that single men made better soldiers than those with wives and families, he outlawed marriage for young men. Valentine, realizing the injustice of the decree, defied Claudius and continued to perform marriages for young lovers in secret. When Valentine's actions were discovered, Claudius ordered that he be put to death. Other stories suggest that Valentine may have been killed for attempting to help Christians escape harsh Roman prisons where they were often beaten and tortured. According to one legend, an imprisoned Valentine actually sent the first Valentine greeting himself after he fell in love with a young girl, possibly his jailer's daughter, who visited him during his confinement. Before his death, it is alleged that he wrote her a letter signed, From Your Valentine, an expression that is still in use today. Although the truth behind the Valentine legends is murky, the stories all emphasize his appeal as a sympathetic, heroic, and most importantly, romantic figure. The origin of Valentine's Day, a pagan festival in February. While some believe that Valentine's Day is celebrated in the middle of February to commemorate the anniversary of Valentine's death or burial, others 
claim that the church may have decided to place St. Valentine's feast day in the middle of February in an effort to Christianize the pagan celebration of Lupercalia. Celebrated at the Ides of February, or February 15th, Lupercalia was a fertility festival dedicated to Faunus, the Roman god of agriculture, as well as to the Roman founders, Romulus and Remus. In other words, the Catholic Church, did so, many believe, did sort of the same thing that they did with Easter. Easter was this pagan fertility festival, spring festival, hence the bunny and the eggs. Okay, It was this spring festival that was dedicated to the goddess of fertility, Estra, from which we probably get the word estrogen. Okay, And so the Catholic Church, seeking to superimpose Christianity onto this celebration where the pagans were getting together anyway, decided to come up with Easter, which is not in the Bible. Moving on. Apparently they did the same thing with Valentine's Day. Lupercalia survived the initial rise of Christianity, but was outlawed as it was deemed unchristian at the end of the 5th century when Pope Gelasius declared February 14th to be St. Valentine's Day. Okay, We're going to take this pagan festival and we're going to make it St. Valentine's Day. We're just going to Christianize this pagan get-together. It was not until much later, however, that the day became definitively associated with love. During the Middle Ages, it was commonly believed in France and England that February 14th was the beginning of the birds' mating season, which added to the idea of Valentine's Day. Valentine's greetings were popular as far back as the Middle Ages, though written Valentines didn't begin to appear until after 1400. Americans probably began exchanging handmade Valentines in the early 1700s. In the 1840s, Esther Howland began selling the first mass-produced Valentines in America. Closing paragraph. Listen closely. This isn't all from their website on this closing paragraph, the way it's worded. Today's Valentine's Day is a day that over 62% of Americans celebrate, and they do this by purchasing over 35 million heart-shaped boxes of chocolates. That's a lot of chocolates. They celebrate it by buying from the more than 220 million roses that are produced in a typical year. And they celebrate, that is, Americans, by spending approximately 20 billion, with a B, 20 billion dollars a year altogether, which works out to an average of $130 per person overall in the celebration of Valentine's Day, including spending a grand total of 4 billion, with a B, on jewelry alone. All of this in the name of human love for a holiday that is named after a man and the origins of which 
remain uncertain and shrouded in mystery. Did you notice the terms as I read through that? I tried to pause so that you would. Did you notice the terms as I read through that? Legend. What's a legend? Well, something that may or may not be true. Who knows? Contends. Somebody contends something means what may or may not be true. Did you catch the terms suggest? May have been. Possibly. Alleged. Stories. Believe. Murky. Claim. Idea. Possibly. Did you catch all those terms as I read through that? Thank God in heaven that the absolute love that we have been shown and that we have been given and that we have experienced by the blood, by the heart, and by the divine plan of the eternal and living God of creation is not based on any such murky, fickle, maybe uncertain, vague stories or suggestions or mere possibilities at all. The love that we have been shown by God is based on absolute, rock-solid evidence and the divinely guaranteed take-it-to-the-grave-and-back promises and actions of the living God on our behalf. The absolute certainty that God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's not maybe. That's not vaguely. That's not uncertain. That's not shrouded in mystery. That's what happened. History itself, move aside from the Bible for a moment, secular history itself proves the existence of the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Thank God that the love that we have from Him is sure and certain. If anybody would spend those, that kind of money and put that kind of devotion into something shrouded in mystery, nobody knows where it came from. It's all based on, on ideas and vague possibilities. How much more should we put into our celebration of the living God who has proven his love for us? It is locked down. It is rock solid. It is based on evidence. The Apostle John would say in the first of his third epistles, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In the very next chapter, 1 John 5, 10 through 13, it says, He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given us his Son. Given of his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Does that sound like a maybe to you? Does that sound like a, well, it's kind of a murky thing. We can't under, it's not real clear. We don't know. For, no, no. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. 
He who has the life, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things, John says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He don't want you to think guessing. He says you don't have to wonder. You don't have to sit back and hope maybe that, that somehow there was this guy called Jesus and he was... No, he says, I, these things are written, 1 John 5 and verses 11 through 13, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Earlier in that very same epistle of 1 John in chapter 3 and verse 1, John makes this statement. Listen closely. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. What incredible, awesome, unthinkable, infinite love God has bestowed on us for absolute certain that we should be called children of God. You know, you think about some of these tragic stories that you may see now and then on TV of these children that are born and they're born with all these birth defects or they're born in these foreign countries and, and the parents desert them or abandon them and they've got all these malformities and, and nobody seems to want to adopt some of these kids and, and some of them are, you know, these little kids are orphans after these bombs go. I mean, just a terrible shape. Well, you know what? You and I spiritually were just like those children. We were a mess. Sin had beaten us up. We are not worthy to be God's children because God is holy. God is righteous. God is perfect. God is pure. God cannot stand sin in His presence. So here's this holy, righteous, perfect, awesome God. And here are these children that are stained in sin. Here's these weak, frail, beaten up human beings that have done all kinds of evil and terrible things. And, and God can't have them in His presence because of His holiness. So God, in His great love and mercy, delivered a process or laid out a plan, and He said, I'll take those people whose lives are ripped apart by sin. I'll take those people who've been damaged by sin, who've been beaten up by sin. I'll take those people, those, those kids right there, that Satan has absolutely just ripped apart. He's torn their lives apart. He's made their lives a mess. And I will cleanse them, and I will make them my children. Behold, what manner of love. Behold, what manner of love. The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. That's the love we're here to celebrate this morning. That's not vague. That's not shrouded in mystery. That is absolute. That was the plan God had in place since before the creation of the world. Ephesians 1, 4 and Ephesians 3, 8 through 12. John earlier in his gospel recorded something that Jesus said just hours before his death on the cross for you and me and all of us. You want to know what great love the Father has bestowed on us that we might be called children of God? John said, uh, Jesus said just before he was crucified in John 15 and verse 13, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. That's the love God has for you and I. I want for us to consider with the remainder of this morning's lesson the full 
loyal, royal, faithful, beautiful, incredible, bountiful love. The infinite and incomparable love which the living God has for you and me has shown to you and me and is already given to you and me as that love is contained in the word beloved. rest of this sermon want us to think about the love contained in that word beloved. Don't answer me out loud, but what do you think of? What comes to mind when you hear the word Beloved. Think about it for a minute. What comes to mind when you think of the word beloved? The Greek word that is translated in our New Testaments, beloved, means esteemed, dear, held dear, dear, favorite, worthy of love. I want you to think about that as we continue. The word beloved in the Greek means dear, esteemed, favorite, or worthy of love. That word beloved occurs in our Bibles, entire Bibles, as a translated word, 133 times in 119 verses. It's a very common Bible word, beloved. That word beloved occurs 38 times in just a short little eight chapter book, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, however your Bible lists it. 38 times in eight verses in that little eight chapter, I'm sorry, 38 times in eight chapters of that short little book of lovers known as Song of Solomon. Daniel was a man, a faithful man. And in the book of Daniel, he is referred to three times as greatly beloved, greatly beloved by the angel that God sent to help give Daniel peace and strength and understanding in his struggles. Greatly beloved. As we all know, that word beloved is a term that the Lord God Almighty used on several different occasions to refer to His perfect, precious, sinless Son, Jesus Christ. Beloved. He used it at Jesus' baptism in Matthew 3.17 where it says, Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Can you imagine what it must take to please completely, to well please completely, Almighty God. That, that's quite a high order. That's higher than you and I can get our little minds around. But he said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God was, was perfectly pleased with Jesus, for there was no sin nor fault in him. And God says, he's my beloved Son. He's my esteemed, dear, favorite, worthy of love Son. Mark and Luke would also record that same occurrence. Isaiah, in, the, in his book in the Old Testament, had prophesied that God would send his beloved, in whom God's soul would be well pleased. A prophecy which Jesus fulfilled according to Matthew 12 and verse 18. Another instance of God using this term, beloved, to talk about his son, Jesus Christ. 
would be where Jesus took three of his disciples and he went up onto the mountain and he was transfigured before them. And once again, what did God thunder down? God echoed out, this is my beloved son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 17 and verse 5 and Mark and Luke would also report that. Finally, in a passage I'm going to ask you to turn to this morning, in Mark chapter 12, the word beloved is applied to Jesus once again. There's two accounts of this vineyard story. One is in Mark 12 and one is in Luke 20, the two which contain the word beloved. I'd like for us to just take note of the first nine verses of Mark 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. Man planted a vineyard, set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now remember, this is a parable, and what Jesus is trying to get across to the Jewish nation here, who were the Old Testament children of God, he's trying to get across to them this idea that God set them up very beautifully and very well, but that these people refused to return God's love, and in fact, as God wanted from them that which was produced by what he had set them up with, they wouldn't give it to God, and they did some terrible things. Let us continue reading verse 2. Now at the vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers, that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. God is looking to get back that which he left his people in charge of. But they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and treated, I'm sorry, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. We get a picture here of the Old Testament prophets as God is sending the Old Testament prophets to his people Israel, whom he set up so beautifully and so well with everything they needed in the promised land. And God keeps sending them these prophets, wanting back from them that which God deserved, and they would not give it to him. And therefore, verse 6 of Mark 12, still having one son, his beloved, his esteemed, dear, worthy, this crown jewel, if you will. He also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They thought if they got rid of Jesus, they would have won. So they took him out and killed him, cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. We know that God came, as it were, in judgment of the Jews as his people at that point in time. That's why we have a whole new covenant. That's why the old covenant was nailed to the cross. As we read this, we see that term, beloved, for his beloved son in verse 6. But we see something else. Yes, God is love. Yes, he is. Yes, God is patient. Look how many people he sent them. How many would you have sent, right? How many would I have sent? God is very patient. Hundreds of years trying to work with this obstinate and stubborn and selfish people. Yes, God is patient. Yes, God is kind. But, as this text shows, 
to reject His only begotten Son, to reject His beloved Son, is to reject God's love. It is to reject all the love God has. It is to reject God's grace. It is to reject God's mercy. It is to reject God's forgiveness and everything connected to it because everything God wants to give us is in His Son, Jesus Christ. His only begotten and beloved Son whom they rejected. But contrast that with this. Turn with me to Ephesians. Just the opposite over here. What a beautiful passage. Turn to me to Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 8. Look at this incredible contrast. Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Remember, he's writing to the first century Church of Christ there in Ephesus who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him, you see, we've got to be in Christ, just as it said in verse 3, just as it says in verse 4, and just as it says many more times throughout this chapter, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him, in love. God knew. God knew what was going to happen in the garden. God knew before he laid the foundation of the world. He knew exactly what was going to happen. God knows everything. He knew man was going to fall. He knew that he was going to tell Adam and Eve what it took to be right before him. And he knew that then they were going to have to have a choice. He let them have their own free will choice. So they were going to have to hear the other side from Satan. And he knew that when they heard both sides, they were going to do it Satan's way. He knew that. And even then, in his great grace and mercy, he, knowing that, he had a plan in place to make it all right again if they would but accept that plan. What an awesome God. Having predestined us, that is, those of us who would get into Christ Jesus, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. See, God, God had this plan. It was good. To the praise, watch verse 6, this whole thing is to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's all about God's grace. God, in his great grace and mercy... Before he ever made the world, knowing that man would sin and fall short, God in his great grace had this plan in mind that would involve his grace and forgiveness to take care of the problem man was going to create before he ever created man. That's how much grace God has. But what did he do with that grace? To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the Beloved. And in this case, the beloved refers to Jesus Christ himself, the beloved son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of his sins according to the riches of his grace. If we're in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. He has made us accepted in the beloved. Think for a moment about all the sins you've committed in your life. Think about the holiness and the perfection of God. Yet if you are in Christ, 
When God looks at you, He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that awesome? That's what this verse tells us. If we're in Christ, we have been made accepted in the Beloved. If we are in the Beloved, if we are in Christ, He's made us acceptable. What does that mean? That means that when He looks at you, despite whatever sins you have, you have committed in your life, when He looks at you, He sees Jesus Christ. He sees Christ's righteousness. He sees Christ's holiness. He sees Christ's sinlessness. That is what he's talking about to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. This is the kind of love that our Heavenly Father both has and has expressed and made available to any and all of those who will accept his, his gift. His gift of love and forgiveness to become his very own beloved children. And brethren, I'm here to tell you this morning, open your eyes, your hearts, your ears, your minds, and your Bibles. This love is not based on some murky, fickle, man-made emotions or maybe believable legends. This love we're talking about this morning from God the Father is not based on any uncertain human suggestions or stories or vague claims or possibilities. It is based entirely and completely and always on the priceless and precious love and promises of Almighty God. In what He did for us with Jesus Christ, His only begotten and beloved Son on that cross. As a matter of fact, some of the Gospel writers would tell us, Hey, we were there. We saw it, we heard him, we heard it, we experienced Jesus. Both John and Peter tell you that. In 1 John 1, 1 through 4, and in 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, both John and Peter say, hey, we were eyewitnesses. We know what we're talking about. This is for real. But here's what I want for us to understand. Yes, God referred to His Son, Jesus Christ, as His Beloved many times. But did you also know that, yes, He referred to Jesus Christ, His Son, as His Beloved Son, and He's given us this plan whereby we can be accepted in the Beloved. But did you know that many in the scriptures who accepted this gift of God's love on his term, did you know that they became in his eyes his beloved? Did you know that? Did you know that the term beloved, that same term with which he referred to his son Jesus Christ, that same term beloved is often applied in the same way to human beings? To those human beings who are accepted in the beloved. Those specifically referred to in the scriptures with the word beloved would include the following list. Barnabas, Paul, Timothy, Tychicus, Luke, Onesimus, Philemon, and a whole bunch of others are referred to that same way. They're, this is just incredible. Romans 8, 1-17 talks about how we are sons of God for in Christ. Despite everything I've done, yes. You really think God's grace is 
No, I don't think it is. I know it is because I'm reading from the rock-solid scriptures. This term, beloved, is used to refer collectively to the whole congregation of the first century Church of Christ at Rome in Romans 1, as well as several different individual Christian saints in chapter 16 of Romans. James talks about his beloved brethren in his little epistle three times. Peter uses the term eight times. First, second, and third John use the term beloved eight times, and Jude uses it three times. The Apostle Paul uses the term beloved four different times to refer to or to talk to his brethren in Corinth and twice in Philippi. Why do I go through that? Here's why. Because those saints that were in those congregations of the Lord's church in the first century, and that was the only church that was there. I mean, we read about it in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ. There was no other, there were no denominations. One church, one body. The way it should still be if everybody was following the scriptures. Because that's God's plan. But those people in those congregations that were struggling with Roman government oppression, with Jewish oppression, with all of these different oppressions and the struggles of life and everything they were going through, they needed to know that they were God's beloved, dear, esteemed, special, worthy of his love people. That is why Peter and James and John and Paul referred all of those times to their brethren as beloved. And I'm telling you this morning what I want you to know this morning, folks. Same thing's true today. With everything that's going on in our lives, we need to understand. If we're in Christ, we are beloved brethren. We are beloved of God. We are in the beloved, accepted of the beloved. Look with me for a moment in 1 Thessalonians. Here's a place Paul used the term. What an awesome thing it is to be the beloved of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, Paul tells you who the letter is from. He says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, these are people that were in Christ. They were in God, therefore... They were accepted in the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. To them he writes, verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. I want you to notice a couple of three things in this passage before we close. Number one, what do you see there? You see the presence of faith, hope, and love. You see them in verse 3? What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians? Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. We see them all right here. But there's something else that we see here. Verse 4, these beloved brethren understood their election by God. And therefore, what had their response been? Their response had been, verse 3, their work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. 
If a person truly understands what it means to be beloved, what it means to be in that relationship, you can't have this beloved relationship and have it be just a one-way relationship. Husbands, wives, you, you, it can't be just one-way relationship. It doesn't work that way. God has, has made us accepted in the beloved and he's given us all these precious and beautiful and awesome, wonderful, eternal gifts and gifts here. And so in return in our love for God, because we are in the beloved, we are beloved brethren, beloved children of God. We work because of our faith. We say, God, I love you so much, I just want to give you what you want. What do you want, God? We, we work in our faith. We perform this labor of love. What does God want me to do? What effort can I put forward to show God I love him? That's what I want. It's a labor of love. And it's a patience of hope. We continue to work, even though it doesn't seem as though maybe it's doing a lot of good or whatever, but we're steadfast and we serve God. And we're patient and waiting for that blessed hope of eternity one day, but also the hope that the efforts that we're making will do good things. And that's what it means to be beloved or that's our responsibility because we are beloved of God. There is absolutely nothing else on earth, nothing, that is more wonderful, or powerful, or comforting than to know that we have been cleansed and made accepted in the beloved. And that's what I want you to know this morning. The one other thing that I neglected to mention at the start of this sermon regarding Valentine's Day was the many, many proposals that are made on Valentine's Day. One has to wonder how many of those proposals actually wind up never making it to the altar or if they do end in divorce five years later. But God has a proposal for you. God has a proposal for you this morning. It's a little bit different than the world's proposal or somebody proposing marriage because it's not based on human love or merit or frailty. It is based on the rock-solid eternal plan and purpose and promise of Almighty God. You can count on it. God said, if you accept my proposal, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How can you turn that down? Would you this morning become his beloved by allowing him to make you accepted in the beloved? Would you accept this plan? Would you, would you love God so much you say, God, I can see what you've done and I, can, and I know I've sinned and I know that I've got to, I know that, that I'm not right and I want to become your beloved and I want to be accepted in the beloved. I want to become your beloved child. I want, I want that status where when you look at me, despite all the wrong things I've done, when you look at me, you only see the perfection of Jesus. I want to be accepted in the beloved, God. God, what is your plan? And God's outlined his plan for us in the scriptures. We must hear his gospel. We must hear about the Christ who suffered and died for us. We must be willing to believe it. We must be willing to confess Christ is Lord. We must be willing to repent of our sins. And this is where a lot of people, unfortunately, this is the one that they leave out. There's got to be a repentance. There's got to be a change of heart. You've got to turn toward God and say, God, it doesn't matter what you want. I'm going to just give you what you want because I want to be one of your beloved. 
I want to be accepted, God. God says we've got to repent, Acts 2 and verse 38. He also says that passage, we need to be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. It's got to be for that reason. That's what the scripture says. That's God's plan. When we do that, through His grace, because He extended that plan to us, and our faith, we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. But because of His grace providing that plan, when we by faith accept and follow and obey that plan, He cleanses us. Would you accept His grace on His terms and become one of His obedient or beloved children washed in the blood? Accepted in the beloved. Well, how do I do that? Well, the Bible only has two passages that tell us how to get into Christ. How we become accepted in the beloved. How we get there, into that state, into Christ, spiritually speaking. They're Romans 6, 3 and 4 and Galatians 3, 26 and 7. Both of them are the only two passages in the entire Bible that use the phrase, into Christ. Tell us how we get into Christ, in the beloved. And the word that precedes into Christ is baptized. We are baptized in water for the forgiveness of our sins. There's nothing in the water. Nothing at all special. But it's just an act of obedience. If God said, hey, you want to be saved? Shave your head and paint it blue and you'll be saved. What would you do? Probably be looking for a razor if you want to be right with God, right? That's all this is about. That's God's plan. That's what the book says. I didn't write it. None of you wrote it. Don't write your own book. It won't help you. God says, here's the plan for the forgiveness of your sins. Saul of Tarsus was told, Acts 22 and 16, why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's the plan. Do you trust God? You want to be in the beloved? If you'd like to study these things further and you're not quite sure, that would be wonderful. If you have a need to be baptized, that would be awesome this morning. Or if you have a need this morning for the prayers of the church, will you please come to the front as we stand and sing?